Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, Channel Pros. This is Rob Spee, your host, and I am pumped that you are joining me for episode number 10 of Channel Journeys. Thank you so much for listening. The number of listeners is almost doubling every month, and we are just getting started. I have so many more awesome guests that I want to interview on this show. You know, my goal from day one has been to provide you with not only channel tips, but also to share the personal and professional stories of our guests. The Channel Network is a small world, and it's all about relationships. And this podcast is for those of us who enjoy getting to know the person as much as the professional. Today's guest, Laz Gonzalez, has a very interesting background. He immigrated to the U.S. from Cuba as a young boy in the 60s, and the channel isn't the only thing in his blood. Cuban music played a big role in his life and still does today, as you'll soon find out. Laz is well-known in the channel. You may have seen him at numerous channel events. He's had a long and interesting career wearing many different hats in sales, marketing, and engineering. And after many different channel roles, Laz became the head of channel management strategies for Serious Decisions, a sales consulting firm that was recently acquired by Forrester. Today, Laz is the chief strategy officer for the channel tech company Zift Solutions. We get into a very interesting conversation around channel marketing, where Laz lays out the three key ingredients for success. And as you'll hear, many vendors are often missing one of the key ingredients. Laz also shares what amount of each ingredient you should have as a percentage of your channel marketing budget to maximize the return of that investment. You don't want to miss this one. Here we go. Hey, Laz, good afternoon. Thanks for joining me on Channel Journeys. Great to have you on the show. Uh, Thanks so much, Rob. A real pleasure to join you today. Excellent. And where are you calling us from today? Well, I'm calling you from Zips headquarters in Jersey City, New Jersey. Actually, we have a beautiful view of the Freedom Tower and the Hudson River, and it's one of those you know sunny days that we get every now and then. Well, lucky you. It's just been really cruddy down here in Atlanta, just soggy and nasty. So I'm glad you got some sunshine. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, get started. Um, why don't you tell us about Zift? Some of our Lyft listeners may not be familiar with Zift, and tell us about the company and, and what you do there as Chief Strategy Officer. Well, let me say that uh, Zift is a company on a mission. Think of us as the uh, channel equivalent of ERP software. Um, okay. In, a few years ago, uh, I joined Zift um, with the idea, uh, having been a, an industry analyst for several years before that, that I had seen um, channel leaders and had been working with channel leaders uh, around uh, the tools that they use and the software and the applications and, you know, getting partners to use all that stuff. And it became apparent that uh, organizations, you know, were faced with making multiple decisions about the tools they would use to run their channel program. And so taking a step back, you think about the, the channel organization, pretty much in any company, is almost an afterthought. Most companies underfund the function, you know, the folks that work in there, um, some of them don't have that background, that deep background. So, you know, this is really hard. And when you ask an organization like that to make four or five, you know, technology decisions, whether they be, you know, cloud apps or anything that they need to hand over to partners, it's really difficult. 
So for a long time, I was talking about how the industry would consolidate and how um, you, know, you needed to really have all these applications under one roof. And um, I left my post as uh, one of the leading channel um, analysts and came to work for Zip. And you know, that was two years ago. And during that time, uh, we've had some mergers. So we merged with Relayware. You might remember them, uh, you know, one of the leading uh, PRM applications. Um, we had some acquisitions. So you may have heard of Elastic Grid. They had a fantastic, uh, you know, marketing application with a great UI uh, and also, you know, folks around the world. And so our idea was to bring all of this together under one roof to create the channel equivalent of that ERP software end to end. So it, it's been a, an incredible journey for us. And really the fruits of our labor are starting to show with, you know, really big companies that may have had, you know, either the Relayware tool or the Zip tool now uh, coming to us and saying, listen, I want to, I want to buy into that end to end. So that's what we're doing. And, you know, working with the, the top channel brands, not just in, in tech companies like Cisco and Samsung, but also in other places like manufacturing, working with companies like uh, Caterpillar and, and other companies that are just not technology. So it's been a lot of fun, Rob. And, uh, you know, I've, we've crossed paths a couple of times during this journey that we're on. And, and you can see. We have. Goes. We have. And, and when, I, when I first met you, Laz, I think that was pre-RelayWare acquisition. So at that time, Zift was really more of just a, a marketing channel marketing platform. But you've really expanded, like you said, to have... Uh, the full platform today, correct? That's right. And, you know, it's important what you just said, that we started from the marketing side, because that's that's a front office type application. Um, the marketing is really what generates the opportunities and the leads. And those are the common denominators of most channel uh, programs. So having the broad arsenal of marketing tools at our disposal in conjunction with the database for the partners and the incentives and the learning brings it all together. But you got to have that marketing and you have to be really good at it. So in your role as chief strategy officer, are you still more leaning in the channel marketing camp or do you cover all bases? No, I, I cover all bases, uh, Rob. Um, you know, it was funny that probably about, geez, let's say 10 years ago, um, you didn't hear too many people talking about channel marketing per se. The, you know, the functions were... Uh, not very well defined, um, you know, channel marketing was, you know, part program, part sales effort, part marketing effort. And I really cut my teeth on channel marketing, working with, you know, about a hundred companies at serious decisions, sitting, you know, side by side to some of the leading experts in marketing. So I was able to take things like the demand waterfall and help my customers implement it in the channel or account-based marketing and uh, teach suppliers how to run those programs with partners. So that was a big plus for me. But before Serious Decisions, I'll tell you what, um, I was involved in roughly five or so channel programs, you know, some starting from scratch. And my role there was uh, you know, mostly on the sales side. So, you know, really working with PRM and tools like that to make sure that um, those things were, uh, were available. Well, I, I want to talk about your channel journey and, and where you started. Before we do that, though, I'd like to do a lightning round with my guests, just so we get a chance to, to understand who you are. So sure. I've got a couple of quick questions for you. You ready? Yeah, go right ahead. This is fun. All right. Laz, what's your favorite food? My favorite food is actually, it's Cocovan, the French uh, uh, chicken dish. 
Ah, Coco Vin. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. French. Okay, good. What is your favorite place? My favorite place? Uh, Valencia, Spain. Uh, it's, uh, it's a wonderful coastal Mediterranean town. It has historic, it has third largest city in Spain, and it's right on the beach. Sounds nice. Yeah. Do they serve, do they serve French coco vin in Valencia? No, but they, uh, they serve uh, <laughs> paella valenciana, which is my second favorite dish. <laughs> oh, I love paella. I yeah. love paella. Yeah. You got me there. All right. What is your favorite hobby? Um, well, I, I play music. So my favorite hobby, I would say, is playing music. I play drums. What kind of drums? Well, I play conga drums. Um, you know, I was born in Cuba. And uh, when we came in the 60s um, to the United States, it was quite a journey for us coming from this tropical paradise. And we moved to the Bronx. <laughs> you, can... <laughs> but, uh, you, didn't, you didn't take the usual path of going to Miami. Uh, we did, but Miami was there was nothing there. I mean, when we got there, I came over in 67. So we came over to Miami. There was just horse farms and retirement villages and not, not a lot of commerce. So we went with wow. the jobs were, and that was up in New York. And the reason I bring this up is because as I grew up and we would have these house parties, everybody was a musician, right? There were pots and pans and sticks and everybody would create some percussion and dance the night away, you know? So that got it in my blood, I guess. That sounds awesome. So what age did you start playing the conga drums or is it like you were born that way? I was kind of born that way, and it wasn't until an adult that I really took lessons and learned how to read music and that kind of stuff. And it happened at church, and my, my kids would watch me standing on the pew and tapping away, and they say, Dad, you know, you better go tell them that you can play drums because we can't stand you anymore here. <laughs> <laughs> so do you play conga drums at church now? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, I pack them in. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to that service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I noticed on LinkedIn that you have a, an interesting past. You actually were in the Air Force. That's right. That's right. I went to the Air Force during college and I did a stint at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Um, you know, my dream as a kid was uh, to be an astronaut. And, uh, you know, in the 60s, that was a big deal. And in the 70s. So, um, you know, I went as far as getting pilot rated and getting into some of the indoctrination programs. But um, I also grew up during the time when the PCs were exploding. And I can tell you that right out of high school, um, knowing how to program, um, I was already working for software companies as a programmer. So I had a decision to make when I was in school was, you know, do I stay with the flying or do I get into more of this thing that's happening with computers? And I have no regrets because I always believe that, you know, if you have a dream, you have to chase it as far as you can. And, uh, and make it real. The worst thing you could have is, you know, be, have regrets. So, uh, you know, I have no regrets. And I went towards computers and, uh, you know, was involved in, you know, way back early as, you know, PCs started jumping and, and things were fantastic. And my career was a reflection, having that, you know, that solid technical background later on when I went to work with tech companies and run channels for software companies. I really understood the products that they were asking those partners to sell. So it was re really useful. That's pretty cool. Did you ever do any flight training in the Air Force? Yes. Yeah, I did. I did. I did. Um, I did the trainers, which are the T-41s. Those are Cessnas. And, you know, you, you take them up and down and do all sorts of maneuvers. And I also did some jets where, you know, they were also trainers, you know, side by sides. You know, they were all older jets, but they were perfect for trainers because they could have the instructor sitting alongside the, 
the the pilot and those were I, I think they were called T-37As, right? They, they called them the Tweety Birds. So anyway, yeah, those are the ones I got to fly. That's awesome. My dad was a pilot and uh, oh, he cool. had a couple Yeah, he had some Cessnas, the old Cessna 172. Okay, that's the uh, civilian and, version. Yeah, I think there was a Cessna 150 even. But the, yeah, this was back in the 60s and I'd go out. He had an airport that was actually an old pig farm. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and it was his own little business and he gave flying lessons and helicopter rides at the state fair and that type of thing. It was wow, a lot of that's fun. that's thrilling. That's fantastic. And, you know, for if anybody, if you don't know what it's like to be in a little Cessna up in the air, <laughs> it's like a... <laughs> <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. No, definitely. You feel like those doors could open at any moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, that's really cool. So you got into computers and then how did you get your start in the channel? Um, you know, if I had to pinpoint it, you know, I was a network analyst for a software company. Um, and, you know, I had, I had done that kind of role before, but in particular, when I was in a software company, we were a partner of uh, digital equipment corporation. So you might remember deck. Yeah. Old deck. Yeah. Our so- deck at that point was, you know, the second largest computer company in the world, uh, only behind IBM. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, DEC had, a, they had a partner program and we were an ISV partner. We sold, um, we sold software that helped book, book publishers, you know, run their business, you know, HarperCollins, Oxford University Press, folks like that. And, uh, so I was a network guy and I was responsible for, you know, making sure that the systems were up and the software was loaded and the consultants could come in and, and write some code. And uh, I relied on, you know, uh, digital equipment and the partner program to get a lot of the training and education uh, and support, mm. right? They would come, they would come into these accounts and help us, especially when they bought a lot of equipment from them. So my first experience was as a partner themselves. Um, and then later on from there, I went to work for uh, another software company, Lotus Development. And you might remember Lotus. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, one, two, three, the spreadsheet, freelance graphics. Um, but then they became more of a communications company. They, they, uh, they purchased CC Mail and Lotus Notes. And when they, when they purchased Lotus Notes, uh, it was sort of like a, um, a solution uh, that was out there that, you know, you had to kind of customize it for, for an environment. So, you know, people would use Notes to track uh, employee, uh, maybe applicants. Um, they, they could use Notes to track projects, you know, worldwide. And so we needed partners. And uh, Lotus rolled out uh, a pretty intensive uh, partner program. I was with them for five years and saw the rollout and then actually executed with the partners in, in my patch, which was the New York, New Jersey area. Mm-hmm. And really got to see, you know, a first class partner program, you know, some of the folks that were behind that effort. And then after that, uh, so that was two companies. I did it three more times. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> for three other companies, I helped, you know, uh, at some points just design the program from scratch or, or roll it out, you know, internationally. Another one was Bond. You might know them. They did a ERP software. Uh, they're still mm-hmm. um, so got to do that. And at that point I was, uh, you know, one of my dreams is also uh, to, you know, use the language and the skills of technology and, and visit the world. So uh, with Lotus, my tail end there. And then later when I went with Bond, uh, they allowed me to, you know, run channels for them in Latin America. So I got to see international channels too and saw, you know, how different some of the rules of, uh, of the game can be. 
And so I got a good appreciation. And then Bond was a clearly European company. So I, you know, shuttled between uh, the Netherlands, Latin America, and at the time I lived in Miami. So kind of that, that triangle and uh, really running channel programs and, you know, seeing things work, seeing things not work. Um, and then after that, as you know, I went to work for uh, Serious Decisions. And uh, with that practitioner experience, it put me in a good position to you know, start thinking about what's the right way to do this. And we came out with so many uh, models and frameworks to help companies you know, launch their, their channel programs, if not manage them. Uh, things like you know, marketing frameworks, uh, also investments, how to, you know, how to create budgets around this stuff, and, and also execution. And, you know, that's when I really started seeing, you know, you, you need some type of, you know, enterprise channel management to kind of manage all of this stuff, right? And so that's where it actually took us now, you know, seeing that, you know, ECM or enterprise channel manager now become the, the, the direction that our company is taking. So it's been a journey, but you can see how all this stuff kind of ties together. And I always it say, does. yeah, it's your past that, that- experiences. It, it is a journey, and it's funny. Everyone I talk to who's been in the channel a long time, myself included, you know, it's funny how we we flow through the channel and, and pick up all these different diverse experiences. Being in the channel alone is 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 so interesting because you'd get to do so many different things. But I think your comment about doing international channels, boy, I would encourage anyone in the channel uh, profession to get a, a a stint doing global channels. Somehow get that international experience because. It is so fascinating to see the different cultures and the different rules and and different things that you have to do to be successful around the world. Absolutely. And, you know, name one company, you know, that has a significant channel program that isn't running it globally. Yeah, you have to. And and there's so much more. Usually there's more opportunity for the channel outside the U.S. And some regions, I, I, I work for companies that they sold direct in the United States, but everything outside was indirect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've seen that myself. No, definitely. You also have an interesting background, Rob. We we connected at some uh, large software companies as well, and you've always been around the the channel. But would you say the marketing piece is more of your your concentration? It started that way. Well, let me take it. Yeah, it did actually. I started in marketing, then moved into channel marketing, then I got pulled into channel sales. And and kind of flipped back and forth between the two, Laz. I've I've done both and I enjoy both. Mm. Um, it, yeah, you can't do one without the other. They're, they're, they're so closely intermeshed. And I, I think it helps to really understand what you need to do in channel marketing and how you help partners with marketing to drive sales as a channel manager. That's right. And I think, you know, you know, we, we talked a little bit about some of the challenges in the channel. And I think, you know, your, your view of both the sales and the marketing piece, like me, you know, early on doing the sales and then learning all, all the marketing ins and outs. Um, you know, I think the programs that succeed are the ones that have that alignment between sales and marketing and they don't always have it, right? No, they don't. They don't. And so in your current role in, in company, what are you seeing as some of the biggest challenges? And, and maybe we can take it first from a vendor perspective and then from a partner perspective. Okay. Um, well, there are Uber challenges. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And, and then there are day to day challenges. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the day to day challenges, because that's what's hitting everybody, you know, right in the forehead every day. Right. Some of the things that are day to day challenges are really goes back to that, you know, alignment within the organization. You know, um, is the channel organization funded and resourced to do the job? 
Is it connected with the right parts of the organization to succeed? Uh, is there conflict between the go-to-market of the channel versus direct? You know, those things are the day-to-day. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, they still plague a lot of programs, especially the alignment between sales and marketing in the channel. Um, you know, we have a unique perspective on this because we serve, uh, you know, uh, applications to both, um, to both groups. And, you know, the channel marketing folks look at us and say, you know, you know, you're the engine that, that, that helps us create demand with partners, right? And the uh, sales guys look at us more of a, a back office function where they're saying, hey, um, you know, you're the, you're the tool that we use to track and measure and, and report, right? Um, but, you know, when you put those two things together, that's when you see the benefits. So I'll give you an example. Um, when you can, when you're running marketing programs and you're using, let's say you're using uh, the zip tools to go and create marketing programs with partners, you know, you still, you'd be better off if you had some data on those partners so that you could align the campaigns to their target customers, their message, their market. But if you don't really have a place to put that information, right? Maybe sales is off doing this on some corporate SSDS system or something like SFDC, I'm sorry, uh, system on their end, that Salesforce, Mm -hmm. or, you know, they have a homegrown tool that they're trying to squeeze to do this kind of stuff. You know, that stays in a silo. And what happens is that, you know, when you go create demand, you're, you might, you might create a, a different message, right? Think about all the partners that sell to existing customers, right? And you would want to run account-based marketing programs with them. However, without that data, you're bound to create net new programs that probably won't attract or get as much traction as those as those programs could have been if they were designed with this data in place. So I think that that's broken approach, that siloed approach between sales and marketing is one of those things that impacts channel programs on a day-to-day basis. And you're saying the data, it can help break down those silos. The data becomes almost the lifeblood right, that runs through the system. So the information from the partner into the marketing activities, um, that flowing then backwards, maybe the, the data from the learning so that you can see, hey, what are, the, what are the shortest paths to learning to get partners productive, right? I don't want to give them all the training. I want to give them the right training. And so you could almost use data to start, you know, deciphering that. So I think that that is a, a big issue, um, that, that, you know, you have to kind of come to work every day in the channel and deal with. Um, another big issue, but even more prevalent, this is one of those Uber issues, is partner engagement. You know, I mm-hmm. think a lot of uh, suppliers are realizing they can't take a build it and they will come approach. Um, you know, only a small percentage are getting engaged in your partner community. So, you know, the idea that, um, you know, you have to be a little bit more prescriptive you have to be a little bit more engaging with partners. I think that, you know, the engagement really hurts a lot of programs. And, you know, we can see that from, again, some of the engagement data that we see at Ziff. How do your customers use Ziff to drive more partner engagement? Um, we encourage our customers to look at um, the marketing and the sales activities cohesively. In other words, don't look at these as one-off type activities. Try to connect the dots for the partner. Those partners that you're working with are likely to be asked by other suppliers to engage in things that they want them to do, similar marketing programs and so on. So you only have a small chance to get their undivided attention and it doesn't help 
if sales is working one way with them and, and marketing is working another way, then the, the partner needs to see that as one common experience. So one of the things that we do, and this is unique to us, uh, especially since we're looking at you know the whole enterprise, is we, we try to include workflows and streams that take them all the way from sales to marketing. So a great example is onboarding. Uh, on our platform, you know, you can create an onboarding program that starts when the partner registers into your program, you start collecting data and doesn't stop until they get that second deal, right? So that's end to end. So what we try to do is really help the customers break some of the silos so that it's a better partner experience on the platform. And that in itself would drive more engagement for, for their partners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the the power of, of, these tools and and Jay was talking about you probably heard Jay McBain talk about this third wave of automation how yep. this is you know the channel tools coming in now this is the the third wave and that's really going to take hold and and move channels up from the redheaded stepchild into being a respected profession finally but i don't think it's just the automation i think it's what you're talking about it's the sharing of data the sharing of information across the silos that's i think you know as big of impact yeah, definitely. I think that in itself can make a huge difference. Um, but I also believe that you can't be one dimensional about working with partners. You know, uh, take, for instance, the way that companies um, create sales and marketing opportunities for partners. They almost want the partner to do all the work and they shy away from doing it for them. And that's okay. Uh, in the case of doing things for partners, you might want to do special things for them, like run incentive programs or stimulus programs where it probably is better for the supplier to send that message to the market, for example, a competitive message. Um, and the through partner marketing, you know, I think there's enough acceptance from that. But I think the, the one that most companies fail is the four, I mean, excuse me, the two partner. So there's three modes here. There's, there's two, through, and four. And while everybody starts at the four doing things for the partner and then tries to get them to do things on their own, and they call that the through partner, it's really getting those partners to know what's out there, letting them know, hey, here's how to engage. And to do that, you have to be very prescriptive. You have to you know, market to those partners as if you know, they're customers. What would that, be an uh, example... Laz, just to make it clear to our audience, what would be an example of of two marketing, like a two marketing campaign versus a through marketing campaign? Well, um, a two marketing campaign could be an awareness program. It could be uh, a program that targets a specific set of partners to engage, let's say, in a new offering. So let's say you're a software security company and you know, you're going to market with a new product line and you want those partners to get behind it before you actually create lead generating campaigns, you have to get those partners enlisted and get them on board. So a focused effort, it would be an awareness program that treats partners like leads and possibly converts them and gets them engaged and brings them into the marketing activities. So, you know, you ever heard the, the saying, uh, leading the horse to water, you almost have to lead the horse to water here. Um, because and, if you don't, they're not going to find the trough on their own. And is this campaign to existing partners or also to partners that you want to recruit? Well, you could use it both ways. And that's one of the things that suppliers are starting to come to us for is using our platform to recruit new partners. If you believe in the treating the partners like leads, you could effectively 
drive recruitment by, you know, uh, running campaigns in partner watering holes, uh, where they go to get information using inbound advertising, come learn about our program, making them offers to sit through webinars and so on so they can see the value in the partnership. No doubt that that is becoming more and more important. But once they're in your program, you cannot take your foot off the gas. You still have to go back to those partners and you have to message to them, hey, this is what we have. Here's the next step. This is what we would like you to do. Uh, and, and by the way, don't forget to answer the question, what's in it for you, right? Because that's the part that the suppliers kind of forget. They get so enthralled about what they want those partners to do, you know, go find some leads that they forget to tell them, look, and if you do this the right way, this is bound, bound to be the success you'll find. So that two partner works both ways. We, we often forget. We just think, well, of course the partner is going to love us and want to sell our solution. So are there any rules of thumb of how much of your channel marketing budget should be spent on that two-partner marketing versus the through-partner marketing? Well, that is a great question. And the reason I say that is because a lot of organizations have trouble really pinning down the budget requirements for a channel. And mm -hmm. so for us to kind of arrive at what's the right balance, you got to have a sort of take a step back, right? You think about companies and the stage that they're in, in the channel, they could be starting for the very first time. They could be optimizing. So they may have had a channel program for five to seven years, or they could be really established, right? You know, programs that have a branding of their own. Well, regardless of the program itself, you have to kind of say, how much does it take to support the program? And generally speaking, um, and but mind you, this was research that I did as an analyst over a period of eight years, working hand in hand with some of the largest channel programs and, and working with them on their budgets. Um, we would see that companies varied by size, but it but typically companies that were starting and were still under a billion dollars, um, they would be spending anywhere from five to 7% of the revenue that they're getting from the channel in the channel program, right? So think about that, five to 7%, how does that compare with other uh, budgets? So sales budgets could be as high as 20%. So if you make $100, you're gonna spend $20 on the sales. Uh, marketing budgets could be seven or 8%, that's on the high end. So again, make $100, you're spending $8 on marketing. So a channel program to be spending five to seven is not a bad investment. In fact, as the company gets bigger and the channel efforts gets larger, it still takes some doing to support that program, but it doesn't grow exponentially. So it actually goes down. So when you look at some of the larger programs, companies over $5 billion, they'll be spending three or 2% on their channel program. Now, the reason that number is important, right? Let's say that it's 5%. Right. If you're take if you're talking about a hundred, that means you're spending five dollars out of that hundred uh, on your channel program. Now, when you figure that out, the next thing is how much do you spend to the partner, through the partner, and for the partner? So mm -hmm. whatever that number is, right? If that if that number is a million dollars, right? Here are the percentages. You want to spend the majority of it through the partner, no doubt, right? You want partners to engage in lead generating activities that you can track. And those are things that you do through the partner, right? Creating campaigns, having them execute them, building pipelines. That's where you want to spend most of it. But if 
we noticed when we were managing a lot of these uh, budgets that companies that spend anything less than 30% in the two partner bucket, right? They would get less than 15% adoption for anything they did through partner. So let's say you put 100% in the through partner. There's no chance that partners are going to know that it's there and execute it. Let's say that you spent 70% in through partner, and then you took 30% and put it in the two partner. Now you've got an awareness program reminding partners what is available to them. The majority of the spend is going into the through partner, but you've got a focused effort. So that number becomes almost 25 to 30% constant that you have to spend out of whatever program you're running in two partner awareness. Now the four partner, you may want it to have asked me that one, but um, it kind of split out. We're not gonna take from the awareness to fuel four partner. In fact, four partner is also you know, things that bring opportunities to partners or, or mm-hmm. bring benefit. So what we wanna do is those are gonna be special kinds of programs. And I mentioned them, they're going to be financial stimulus programs. So let's say you're a big um, uh, supplier of uh, networking switches, right? And the partner is looking to close a customer. Well, it'd be great if there's a financing offer. And that financing offer is probably better coming from the supplier than the smaller partner. So that's a good example of a four-partner program. Uh, another one is competitive, right? Let's say, and we call these stimulus programs. Competitive means that, you know, this partner's working with a lot of customers out there and you want them to displace your competitor, but they can't do that because they're the trusted advisor. And it doesn't work if you walk into a customer and says, you should buy this one because now, you know, they're better than the one I sold you last year. Um, so they have to be the trusted advisor. However, if you're the supplier and you target these buyers and you talk about how bet, how much better your solution is, your product is than the competitors, and then how they could connect you with the right partner to tell you more, that's perfectly acceptable, you see? And that's a great use of a four-partner campaign. But if you're doing the budget, I would not put more than 10% of your budget in that, in that area. And you may not have mm-hmm. to, depending if you're running those types of programs. But I would say then the split becomes, you know, 30% to the partner, 60% through the partner, and 10% for the partner. And that's that's what I would consider best practice investments. That's great, Laz. I bet most companies are not anywhere close to that 30% on the two-partner marketing. And I'm wondering if that's why we see so many companies having such a problem getting partners to spend their MDF. Is there a, is there a linkage there? Yeah. You know, MDF is a motivator, right, for partners. And, you know, sometimes when you don't get their attention, a lot of companies throw money at the problem and they use MDF. But, Rob, I saw it different ways. I mean, there were some companies that were doing everything for the partner. So they could have been like 80% for partner and they want to go in the other direction. You know, they want to go through and to. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some companies, you know, it really depends on how the channel function is executed within the organization. You might have a channel marketing organization that is responsible for the through partner, but you might have corporate communications that does the two partner. And then when you look at those budgets, it's 50-50, right? But they're not talking about the same thing. And that's what's important is is that create that, that seamless flow, that whatever you're reminding them to do, there is a call to action to get engaged, right? One of the biggest problems or challenges I faced in channel marketing was you you develop these great programs and campaigns, 
and you bring them out to the partners, but so many partners lack any marketing skills. Is that improving at all? Are you seeing any general trend of partners getting any better at marketing? Well, a lot of our customers at Zest are starting to to realize that. And so they come to us to help us educate their partners. And um, we, you know, we have a team of channel engagement folks that just reach out to those partners and they bring them up to speed, not just on our tool, but also on how to execute marketing programs. So I've been seeing a lot of steady progress from you know, the vendor side like, like us, helping large suppliers through you know, channel engagement and concierge and helping them that way. Also helping them create marketing academies, right? Using the learning management components. Um, but on the other side of the issue where the supplier is kind of you know, trying to make a dent on this themselves, you know, there's certainly a slew of those academies coming up uh, from the supplier ranks, you know, places where partners can earn MDF by learning about you know, the do's and don'ts of marketing. But um, you know, it's a slow, gradual growth. There's still a lot of convincing to be done. If you go to you know, your generic partner out there, and I'm probably referring more often than not to an IT type partner in the tech industry, they still believe that their best investments are in technology people and salespeople. So mm-hmm. they don't really rank marketing as, you know, as high on that investment. And they have to be. Yeah. I had, um, I don't know if you know him, Mike Kelly, who launched a company called the Channel Institute. And I had him on the podcast a couple weeks ago. And he's addressing this issue by offering channel marketing certifications, not only for the vendor, but also for the partners. Right. That's a great idea. It's a great idea. I think, I think the, the one thing that suppliers have to remember or remind themselves is how much training is too much training, right? Um, you can go overboard here. And you always have to think that you're not out to make the partner just a better marketer. You want them to be a better marketer on your marketing activities, right? Yeah, it may be hard to, to cut that line. It is, but that's why you have to be extremely prescriptive, right? If you just, yeah. you know, if you just hold a webinar on inbound marketing and teach partners all the great things about inbound and you leave it at that, right? Then all of a sudden, great, the partner knows about inbound and here comes the next company and says, hey, I've got an inbound program. I want you to participate and they'll raise their hand. I know about inbound. Uh, but if you create an inbound program and then you have a call to action behind it, and then says, let us show you how now you could use what you learned on the platform that we've developed for you. Then you've got them coming to you and executing. So you're not just teaching them the value of inbound, but you're also showing them how they can use it immediately. And that's that consistent journey, right? So I, I think that, you know, there's a lesson to be learned in that. Yeah, absolutely. Laz, this has been great. One last question before we wrap up. With all the change and transformation in the, in the channel, what is... What is the biggest thing that you're seeing and how people have to change or, or rethink channel marketing? Is there anything that stands out with all this channel transformation? You know, you could, you could pick which uh, sea change uh, you want to address in the channel, and there's plenty of them. Uh, the different, uh, you know, the move to the cloud is creating, um, you know, those MSP partners, which are very different than most other partners. Um, you also hear about 
different partner types that help promote applications to the business user. So, you know, in companies like ADP and Concur, who work with uh, CPA firms, you know, that makes a lot of sense for them to think about those types of partners as being uh, different types of partners. Um, you know, I think that the big takeaway for me is that um, uh, you cannot take a one size fits all approach in the channel anymore. Um, you cannot create a program that just addresses one type of partner. I think that organizations who are used to, you know, just the standard distributor reseller model are uh, shocked to understand that you know, there are different partner types and different requirements for those partners. And while they may all exist under one program, uh, the touch points, the interactions are different. And so I think that over the past, you know, three years you've been hearing uh, in the conferences and all that, folks talking about specialized partners, cloud partners, MSB partners, agents, referrals, partners in manufacturing, alliance partners. You know, there have been probably a, a two conferences for every type of partner I just talked about. Um, if that's the case, then assuredly suppliers cannot take this one size fits all. They need to uh, develop a program that takes into account the distinct differences of these partners and below that have the tools to support a referral model, to support uh, you know intensive marketing training that you might have to a more committed partner, but also know that these things need to be dialed up and dialed down based on the kind of partner you're working with. Yeah, great point. And with with that one size doesn't fit all for a program that applies to your channel marketing strategy. And that seems to drive an even greater need for automation to be able to handle all these different types of partners. If you want to do this in a scalable way, you have no choice but to find a platform that could take into consideration all the needs that that partner will want from your program across your enterprise and be able to manage that on one platform. That's going to be the key. And the companies that will do this will not only be more efficient in the way that they work with partners and achieve the scale that they need, but they will also be more effective. They will get better results because having this capability will be a competitive differentiator for them. Uh, companies no longer can just have a marketing platform for their partners. It is a competitive differentiator. Those companies that have this have partners who use it and that means they spend time with them and not with other suppliers. Yeah, great point, Laz. So yeah. this has been an awesome conversation. We covered a lot of ground. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to mention? Um, how's it going? How are you guys doing? Is it working? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is working. And, you know, uh, being in the channel is its own roller coaster ride. Um, many people that are going to hear this podcast can identify with the pains and the trials and the tribulations that we've talked about. Um, you know, there is a career here. There's a career for people who know how to do this right. Um, you need the right tools. You need the right companies. You need the right experience. And you saw what my decision was to come to this and have all of that in one place. I hope that some of your listeners are, you know, challenged enough to be curious and and look us up. I think uh, what you're bringing to the table and what we're bringing to the table, especially in a forum like this, is fantastic. So I want to thank you, Rob. Hey, you're welcome, Laz. Thank you. And and how do our listeners find you? Well, they uh, can go to www.ziffsolutions.com and learn all about Ziff, or find me on Twitter at um, hashtag Laz Gonzalez. 
All right. Awesome. And do you have any uh, conga photos on Twitter? Uh, I could put one up there. <laughs> <laughs> we want to see you jamming. You got it, buddy. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. It. Thank you, Laz. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. We got some great takeaways from this episode with Laz Gonzalez. My favorite is Laz's 60-30-10 rule. 60% of your channel marketing budget should go to through partner marketing. 30% should be spent on two partner marketing and just 10% on four partner marketing. And if you haven't guessed it, that is Laz on the conga drum playing the Santana hit Black Magic Woman. Thanks again for listening. I have a big ask of you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave a rating and review. That will encourage others to start listening. And if you have any suggestions for how I could make this podcast better, please send me a note at rob at channeljourneys.com. Join me next week for another channel adventure. Until then, have a great channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends. And be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure. 